The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. Well, we have a really interesting Bible passage this morning. I can guarantee I've never preached on this passage before. I've looked at it before and I've wondered about it before, but I've never preached on it. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. A few years ago, uh, Russell Crowe became Noah, and a whole bunch of Christians rushed along to the movies to uh, see the biblical story of Noah and suddenly realised that this was not the biblical story of Noah. There were so many details in that movie that were not biblical. But it actually served as a reminder that the story of a great flood is not our story. It doesn't belong to Christians. It doesn't belong to Jews. It belongs to the world because so many different cultures have a story of a great flood. And so when they put together the story for Noah... They included a bunch of other ideas. And there's an interesting warning for us because often when we come to our Christian faith, we can often come with a whole bunch of other ideas when what we're actually called to do is come back to the Word. What does the Word say? And this morning the Word is a little bit confusing. So now is probably a good time for me to reaffirm what I call five, my five rules for when I preach. In 2 Timothy 2.15 it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. When I'm preparing to speak for a Sunday, that's one of those verses that sits foremost in my mind. Another one is this. In James 3, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know, we know that those who teach will be judged more strictly. And so I don't come lightly when I come and wrestle with the passage of Scripture. And so I'll share with you my five principles. The first is that when the Scriptures are clear and certain, I will not be unclear and uncertain. I will not modify what I read clearly in the scriptures just to suit my own preferences, just to suit my own desires and my own intentions. If the word of God is clear, I will be clear. 
But where scripture is unclear and uncertain, I will not be clear and certain. I won't draw hard lines in the sand where the scripture kind of leaves us wrestling with is it this or is it that. I will ask myself, what will be the impact if I'm right or if I'm wrong? See, I've read some teaching that I've thought, well, you know, that could be right. But if it's wrong, that's going to affect people's eternities, and that's too high a price. I would rather be wrong and preserve someone's right to receive salvation and be assured of their salvation. I don't want you to believe a word I say. What I want you to do is go home and check it out for yourself. I had a young woman in a church I used to pastor who came to me one day, she'd grown up, or she'd come to faith, I think, as, sort of as a young adult, and had been to another church for quite a long time, and she would come into my office, she said, you know, every Sunday I go home and I go, what Brian said this morning's not right. And she said, and I'd open the Bible and I'd read and go, he is right. That is what it says. You know, it's so easy to sit and rely on a pastor or some other speaker to be the intermediary between you and God. But the Bible tells us there is one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. So go to the Word and ask God to speak to you. And the other one is, if you want to understand the book, it helps to know the author. If you understand God, if you know God, if you understand his character and his nature, then you will try to wrestle past some of those things that are more challenging and more difficult. You see, the Bible is not an ancient text to be dissected and analysed. Hebrews says that it is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Ties so clearly with Gay's testimony before. She was reading the word, she didn't understand it, but it was changing her. That is the power of the word. So with all of that in mind, the subject of this morning's message, or certainly the first part of it, has been the subject of huge debate. And there are so many different ideas and understandings. Um, there are some things we will never know this side of eternity. And there are some things we know are not true. There are some things, there are some interpretations that are placed on this passage that are clearly not biblical. But even for those theologians and scholars who, who wrestle and uphold the absolute integrity of the word of God, there's still a lot of uncertainty about this passage. See, verse 1 says, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, that's really quite simple. We can get that, but that was plan A. God said, go forth and multiply. Then verse 2 says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. And it's like, maybe. Then verse 3 says, that The Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. Interestingly, that was written a very, very long time ago. But if you go to Wikipedia and you look at the, how old people live, so if you go back, and on Wikipedia it lists the oldest hundred women and the oldest hundred men with uh, documented dates of birth, 
who have died in the last 50 years. Most of them actually died in the last 25, and about a dozen of them are still alive. And uh, just to set a target for anyone who really wants to set this, uh, the women were aged between 114 and 122 years of age. And the men were aged between 111 and 116. So 120 is quite possible. If you set your mind to it, and I figure if you get your diet and your location and a whole bunch of other genetics and everything. But verse 4, it starts to get complicated because the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. So we get these questions. Who are the Nephilim? And when is afterwards? And who were the sons of God? And were their children the Nephilim? And if not, which of them were the heroes of old? Was it the Nephilim or the children of the descendants of the sons of God and daughters of men? Most translations use the word giants instead of Nephilim. The term also appears in number 13 when Moses has sent out the 12 spies to check out the land of Canaan. And so at the beginning of that passage, Moses sends them out and he says, see what the land is like and whether the people who live in it, who live there, are strong or weak, few or many. And when, they, when the, 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 the 12 come back, two carry a positive report, but 10 of them go, ah, oh, we saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. Now, it's been mentioned that they could be simply lying because they, they, they could be just painting a horrible picture because they really themselves are too scared. But it seems reasonable that this is what they saw. And in this context, the word giants is certainly a good fit. Noting that Moses is generally accepted as the author of what they call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Then Moses, who sent out the ten into the land, is the same Moses who is writing Genesis 6, the same Moses who hears this report of the Nephilim being in the land. It seems likely, therefore, that the and afterwards, and after the flood, is a reference to this point in time. There's the easy one of the five questions. The other four questions are slightly less straightforward. With all the attempts to understand and explain this passage, there are there are several interpretations that are held strongly enough among those who accept the reality of the biblical text that it's really hard to know which is the absolute right one. And it's probably not necessary that we know which one of these theories is correct. But I want to touch on three of them. One of the most widely held is that the sons of God were fallen angels. And so we have fallen angels who have come to earth, they've chosen a human woman to marry. Now one of the things is, if you read this, the, my NIV, because I use one off, off the internet, and it's, so it's continually updated, and it's got the one that's gone from saying daughters of men to daughters of humans. Now, the moment you go from sons of God to daughters of humans, you kind of go, oh, so the sons definitely weren't from humans. But that can be misleading. Put simply, this would explain, if you've got fallen angels um, 
reproducing with human women, this would explain why their descendants would be large and uh, men of renown and, and, and so forth. If you want to look closer at that theory, uh, there's a bit of information in Second Peter 2 verses 1 to 11 and in the book of Jude that those who hold that theory unpack a little bit more there. If you actually want to see, read a little bit more, I read an article, I've got an article from Answers in Genesis, so I can send you the article, and he says he's just going to scratch the surface, and then he goes on for 10 pages, A4 pages, reasonably fine print, closely printed together. That's his scratching the surface, and so I've got about three minutes to pack that down. It's like, if you want to read it further, read it. A second is that the sons of God is a reference to the lineage of Seth, the fallen descendants of Seth. So these, in, in, in the, what was otherwise we've looked at, the godly line, we talked about it last week, the godly line of Seth, that these were ones who fell away from that, fell away from obedience to God, and instead married uh, women who were from the other descendants of Adam and Eve, the, the non-godly lines. The third option is that they were simply fallen men from godly families. Not necessarily saying all of Seth's descendants were the godly line, and, um, but that they chose to live in disobedience and they intermarried with other uh, descendants of Adam and Eve through Cain and other siblings. It gets complicated. But I must say those latter two actually sit more comfortably with me. It does make it a little bit diff more difficult to understand that, that they were the men of renown and, and, uh, and uh, giants. But their statue, sorry, their stature and their status may not be directly linked to the manner of their conception. In fact, it may simply be that there were giants in the land at the same time that these fallen men were having, uh, were giving birth to children with uh, with the with uh, ungodly woman marrying outside of the giants may have simply been a family line with that sort of genetics. The example that comes to my mind is a guy called Stephen Adams, who many of us know, or his sister Valerie Adams. So Stephen Adams is six foot eleven. That's two point one one meters tall. That's a foot taller than me. I can just about reach that. His father was the same height. His father fathered 18 children with five different women. The average height of their sons is 2.06 metres or 6 foot 9. So the average height of Stephen Adams' siblings, brothers, is 6 foot 9. The average height of the sisters is six foot, 1.83 metres. And Valerie Adams is six foot four or 1.93. So I'm reasonably tall at six foot. So if any of you are less than six foot, you could walk into the land and see Stephen Adams and his family and go, they're too big for me. I'm sure there's a few people on the NBA courts that feel the same. My, per my, my personal belief is I lean to the probability 
that there were these giants in the land because there's this genetic thing that happens that some families suddenly get this very tall line and that uh, it was actually either the descendants of Seth or, or this, uh, these, these godly families and men from these godly families chose women from ungodly families purely based on how they looked. The story so far says we've been carefully uh, where we've been following uh, is told by carefully following two lineages, that of Seth and that of Cain. Later on, we will follow the story from Noah. We'll come to Adam, uh, sorry Abraham. We'll follow his lineage uh, through Isaac and Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel. Uh, Israel becomes the father of uh, twelve sons, who become the patriarchs of the nation of Israel, a nation chosen by God set apart by him to be holy. Like the godly lineage of Seth, we would say they're a godly nation. They're a, a nation set apart by God to be holy. We know that's not how they turned out, but that is how they were set apart. Much like the descendants of Seth appear to be a godly lineage. They were commanded not to marry women from outside of the union, outside of the nation of Israel. And yet these, the chosen of God, were not all godly, and many of them married foreign wives against the clear command of God. And we are told that when the nation of Israel was at its peak, with Solomon as king, that Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughters, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. One might say in lust. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Solomon grew old. His wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Later, looking back and with reference to the history of Israel, the Apostle Paul writes in Corinthians. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings to us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. These things are written to teach us, to train us. If these were fallen angels having children with women, that's one thing. And I guess the principles I unpack still kind of apply, uh, apply but... I think this idea that these are men from godly families who look and see the beauty of women from ungodly families, from, ungodly, from an ungodly line, and choose their desire to, to follow their desire over their obedience to God. They, they choose to follow the, the, the beauty of the flesh rather than to continue to walk in obedience to God. We, we, we see that lived out in Solomon's life. 
And Paul continues, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. In Genesis 6, and in the wilderness years between Egypt and these 12 spies being sent into the promised land, and at any point between there and the destruction of Israel that followed the death of King Solomon, and in the church of Corinth to which Paul is writing, and through 2,000 years of church history and to here and now today, we see a principle at play which actually hasn't changed. And I see it in my own life. There remains this, this wrestling, this striving, this contending with the flesh. And God's Holy Spirit is calling us, drawing us to live a higher life, to live in righteousness, to live a life of holiness, to live in right relationship with the creator of the universe. And this other thing, these desires of the flesh. See, these desires of the flesh, they were given to us by God, but to be used in accordance with his word and his purposes. But when we allow them to be the driving factor, then they become destructive. Those same desires that God has given, if I allow them to be the determinant of my behaviour, then they become destructive. And I believe that's what was happening. I believe that these descendants of Seth were looking over into the descendants of Cain and other siblings and seeing how beautiful the women were and, and actually choosing to form relationship and to form families with this godless line rather than sacrifice that and remain true to the godly heritage that they had through Seth and Enoch and others. We're told that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And they were told that the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I made them. I wrestled with that because you could almost think that God's going, I didn't know this was going to happen. But God knows all things. God knows the end from the beginning. God knew that it would get this bad. God's regret is not a matter of if, if only I hadn't started this thing. If only I'd known, I wouldn't have started, I wouldn't have created. God did know. God knows all things. He knows all things. He knows the beginning, the end from the, uh, he knows the end from the beginning. But he also wants you and I to understand just how much it grieved his spirit. How much our rejection of his will and purposes grieves him. 
He wants us to know and understand why judgment must come. You know, the number of people I've heard who reject God outright because how could a loving God wipe out all of creation? And they're passing judgment on God. Rather than hearing God's heart and understanding how grieved he was by what he saw on the earth. But he knows that we will understand regret. He knows that you and I will do things that we regret deeply. I would imagine Adam and Eve woke up every morning of their very long lives and there must have been just at least an element of regret. As they thought back to how they used to start the day and how they used to finish the day walking with God in the cool of the evening. And they thought back to the tree. And they thought back to their two boys, Cain and Abel, playing in the field as they watched them grow up. And then that day that they learnt that Cain had taken Abel's life. And every morning now they wake up and they see the wickedness growing on the earth. They would understand regret. And in some way all of us, I believe, experience and understand regret. And so we would understand how much the Father's heart breaks. He's created this thing, he's created this whole universe, he's created this earth, he's, he's created this humanity and he's placed them on the earth. And he loves them. And he now sees the destruction that is taking over. And he is grieved. And we know that every inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time. That hasn't changed. If I don't actively, you know, we, we've had that verse where we refer to from Corinthians where it says we don't wrestle as the world, we don't fight as the world fights, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. If I don't do that, if I don't spend time in the Word, if I don't spend time with brothers and sisters of Christ to encourage one another, I know my thoughts very, very, very quickly go downhill. I tend to think of an incline being like that, but it's actually an incline, if you're going like that, it also goes backwards, goes downhill really fast. Take a look out in the world. The further we move away from God, the further the, the, the west... Let's just take New Zealand, which at one stage had a high foundation or a strong foundation on the Christian gospel. The more and more in which we unpack that, look at the state of the world then. You know, we might look at the world and we might be heartbroken. We can look at the world and we can be deeply sorrowful. But if we've read our words, if we've read the word, we would never be surprised. Because we know the scriptures tell us that if we reject the word of God and his rule, it's rapidly downhill from there. We can weep and grieve as God does, did and does, but we should not be surprised. It sounds a terrible story. And next week we begin to prepare for the flood. Noah begins to prepare for the flood. But in the midst of all of this, where God is grieving, 
something turns and there's this two words, but Noah. We're told, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Next week we're in verse 9 and we will read that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Now we might go, well that was before the flood. It's not as bad now as it was then. Maybe. Well God looked down on the earth and he saw Noah. But when Paul looks out, when he's writing to the church at Rome, he quotes a number of Old Testament passages and he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. You know, this puts us in a place that's even worse than before the flood. At least God said, but Noah. But Paul says, that's what it's been like and that's what it's still like. But God, through Moses in Genesis 8, has his but Noah moment. And writing in Romans, Paul has his but now moment. When later on in Romans 3, he says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. In the midst of the bad news of this fallen world that Noah grew up in, Noah stood out as a righteous man. As we read through the story of the flood, it'll take us through to Christmas. The scary part is that's only seven Sundays away. But this, we will realise that the story of the flood is not just one of terror and destruction. It is one of hope. Before, Because as, as Moses, as God found his but Noah, moment. We have but Jesus Christ. We have a message of hope for a world that is getting darker by the day. This is a story of hope and promise. Faced with the evil of his day, Moses wrote, but Noah. We need to be a people who as we look at the state of the world around us as we wake up each morning, as we read the headlines of our newspapers, as we see how many ram raids and assaults and shootings and drug crimes and all sorts of other things are filling our media. We need to be a people who come back. But Jesus, God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Teatitu. 
For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz.